Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. And happy Halloween! Happy Halloween! Now it's officially Nightmare Before Christmas season. (laughs) From now until Christmas? That's correct, yes. Okay. I feel like we've fought about this on the show before. (laughs) I feel like it's an all-year movie. Well, of course. Because, I mean, there's the Easter tree and the turkey tree. But it all takes place between Halloween and Christmas. One could the make entire a entire movie. One could make a case. Okay, okay. Well. For any of those things to be true. <laughs> for like, it's this is a Halloween movie. By and by. This is 100% a Christmas movie. Whatever. That's fine. As uh, our oldest would say, whatever blows your hair back. And... You can enjoy whatever movie you want, no matter what time of year it is. <laughs> of course. But it's seasonally, <laughs> seasonally, it's, it, it belongs. My mom watches Hallmark movies season. 365 days a year. She sure does. <laughs> she called me the other day, just dying laughing, laughing so hard because she couldn't sleep. And so she put on two Hallmark movies back to back and she was giving me the play by play of the two (laughs) she watched. And as she was telling it, like telling me the stories of each of the movies, she was realizing like just how goofy (laughs) it was. It was a delight. We were on FaceTime too. So I could see her, like the realization (laughs) in her eyes of like, that was not a good movie. (laughs) (laughs) I would wonder if it also realized, made her realize, wait, these are all the same movies. Oh, she knows. Oh, okay. She knows. She's aware of that one. I think that she's one of those people that she really finds a lot of comfort and a lot of happiness in things being the same because she's got like such a busy workload yeah. and that kind of stuff. So it's like, this is just easy. I can like turn <laughs> off part of my brain and just be led through this thing that I know is going to turn out well in yes. the end. I, I understand why people are drawn to that. I, I in particular, like to not have a clue what's going on at all when I'm watching a movie. thrive in chaos. Absolutely. Yes. And I'm so entertained by it. And I'm like totally along for the ride of just about any specifically horror movie. Fair. Yeah. And I think that's why I love them so much because they're all so different. It's everywhere. Even when they're like following formulas. Sure. They're still unpredictable. Right. Because you. I love them. At the very end, you still have to figure out. What did I just watch? Yeah, that too. (laughs) Let's say, are they going to let the the good guys win or does the bad guy win? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Is there going to be a sequel? Still, yeah, that's still the wild card, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Anyway, my dear, what are you drinking? So for this All Hallows Eve, 
I thought it would be fun to have a little one of those Tiavana apple Ooh. spiced teas. That is. So that's not the official name. <laughs> yes. But you'll know when you see it. I think yeah. they sell them at Target. Nice. So good. Yum. Very seasonally delightful. What about you? Well, you got something special over there. A little bit. I mean, it's really not like the most unique thing ever, but it's, it's not unique at all. It's something but. that I have not had on this podcast in a long time. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I'm just going hardcore on the Jack and Coke. Ooh. This is actually Coke Zero even. So it's Look another level. I know. I know. I was. It's funny because I feel like there's no way that the 240 calories between the regular one and the zero one makes that much difference. Sure. But. I, I was I was tempted by the zero calorie. Hmm. And I said, okay. Or is it zero sugar? Uh it's both. Oh, okay. Look at that. Zero calorie, zero sugar, cola. So perfect. Yeah. But the Jack Daniels is not zero calorie and is far more potent. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I got for my drink. Do you have so I'm I'm curious what you're gonna do here because we've had some spooky facts, some feel good facts, some games when we had our Patreon episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what uh, what you got going up your sleeve? Tonight? I've got a final little spooky fact. Okay, so this might be a given to plenty of our listeners, but for those who don't know, the practice of covering a recently deceased body with a sheet is believed to be the origin for the sheet ghost costume. Ooh, what? That feels kind of like a duh fact when you think about it, but it's also like, oh, wow, that's actually super fascinating. That does not seem duh to me. Here's why. Because I just always assumed it was because that makes you look like a ghost. Mm-hmm. Like, not not tied to being covered with a sheet first. Sure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that that seems like, like someone... Someone alive was like, oh, if I put this on me, I look kind of like a ghost. Right. And now I guess I'm just now realizing that they had to come to that conclusion somehow before putting a sheet <laughs> that a ghost looks like that. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> if you also think of like, we've talked a little bit about like old Halloween costume practices yeah. for our spooky facts. And there's the, the I don't actually think that we brought this one up, but the practice of wearing a mask used to be kind of twofold where like a mask for uh, this a holiday that would be similar to mm-hmm. Halloween today would be to protect yourself from evil spirits. They would be confused about your identity. Oh, yeah. And so they wouldn't know who you were. And then we also did the one of like the old school, very old school practice of trick-or-treating where the kids would dress up as like ghosts or demons to scare people. Yeah. And so I just think it's such an interesting thing that we've had that urge for so long, just as humans. We love scaring and being scared. <laughs> yes, just we do. Just for fun. We do. Just for funsies. <laughs> All right, my love. What story do you have for us this week? Okay, so just so everyone knows, this is a part two of a multi-part series that we've put together. Oh, right. We're making our way through the beautiful, vast, and surprisingly terrifying Appalachia. We spent our last episode working through a brief overview of the history of Appalachia, how it was settled, the culture, and the unique way that new legends and myths were formed through the blending of cultures over time. From the Native Americans to the European immigrants, those people whose lives and worldviews merged back in the 1700s gave us plenty of frightening tales to work with. And in the hundreds of years since that time, visitors and residents of Appalachia have reported all kinds of strange sights and encounters. Mm. We've got folklore, mythological monsters, real-life sightings of unknown creatures, 
ghost stories, UFO sightings, humanoid encounters, and the list goes on. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. I am so excited. The last episode was so fun to me. Like, we just got so far into the history and the background. And as people have probably figured out by now, the episodes that we like dig into some deep history, it scratches an itch for me that I really enjoy because I just like, I like history a lot. Mm -hmm. And then I'm just like getting blown away by these kinds of stories of the different things. So in my mind, this is like right up my alley. Good. So I'm excited to hear more of these crazy stories (laughs) that exist only a half a country away from us, really. Yeah. Which sounds like a long ways away, but really isn't. And we could make a day trip. Right. I mean, we wouldn't be coming back. It'd be a a full day (laughs) trip to get there. But regardless, it's still like super fun to be. So I'm excited. Good. So I thought it would be fun to start this episode where we left off in the last one. In part one, we talked about Lucy of Roaring Fork Road, a chilling ghost story that has its roots in the Smoky Mountains. And so that's where we're heading for this first story. Okay. This is the tale of the cussing cover. Ooh, the cussing cover? Yes. Okay. What a great name. This is a clean podcast, babe. I know. (laughs) So before we talk about this story, I did want to take a minute just to zoom in to like the specific area within the Smoky Mountains where this story takes place. A hundred years before the Great Smoky Mountains National Park was established, various people had moved into the area referred to as Cades Cove. The cove was a place that was certainly well-traveled by the Cherokee before this time, and it was an excellent hunting ground as well. The first Europeans arrived in the area sometime in the 1820s, and within 30 years, communities had been established in the cove, and the population was sitting right around 685 people, which was largely due to the fact that most settlers of the cove preferred to raise large families Mm. with upwards of 10 to 12 children in any given house. Oh my gosh. Whole lot of kids. The people had built smoke houses, log cabin homes, barns, and the land had been cleared for agricultural purposes. As the population grew, so did the need to expand the community, and so other businesses were brought into the still very remote part of the Smokies, such as schoolhouses and churches and things like that. Mm -hmm. By the time the land was being looked at for a potential national park, the community was pretty well established, and many of the residents were confident that they had found their forever homes. But then the park project was given the green light. Many residents opted to leave the area willingly, while others decided to sign life leases with the government, allowing them to maintain ownership of certain portions of land within Cades Cove, with restrictions also put in place to protect that land from unwanted hunters, loggers, or Mm, travelers. Yeah. So it was like a little agreement that was made with a few, like a couple little pockets of Cove residents and the government. That's really interesting because it sounds like the government is like really trying to protect just that that little barrier of of the community that they've, they've built. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's not it's not <clears throat> I guess in today's day and age we think of the government as like ever expanding. Yeah. And in this case it was more so just defending. It feels like a very like unique moment. Yeah. Between people and the government. Yes. Like, it doesn't seem like this is ever how it goes in regards to we want to do something with the land that you're already living on. Right. It's like super off-brand. Yes. For the government. But anyway, for the most part, it does seem as though these few remaining families that were left in the cove 
kind of lived out life in peace. If you travel there today, it looks almost the same as it did nearly 200 years ago, with many homes and buildings still intact, although many of them are obviously very weathered. So many cite this background as potential evidence of the ghostly activity that's said to take place in the Cades Cove area of the Great Smoky Mountains. One such family that signed a life lease was a married couple by the name of Basil and Mavis Estep, who lived in a cozy two-bedroom log cabin right along the banks of the Whistling Branch stream. All things considered, the living was pretty free and easy for the Esteps in most ways, except for a singular, extremely intense fear that the wife Mavis had. She was absolutely terrified of being struck by lightning. Really? Like, paralyzing fear. The reason for her phobia was due to growing up hearing a particular superstition, that if you're born during a thunderstorm, you're doomed to die via lightning strike. Oh my gosh. Since Mavis was, in fact, born during a thunderstorm, she had made her way through life with terror every time a storm rolled in, afraid that this one might be the one to do her in. This is it. It's all over for me. Poor thing. Oh, that's really, really sad. Yeah. So it did not matter to Mavis that the odds of being struck by lightning are somewhere around one in 500,000. That is very small. She did whatever she could. She took every precaution in order to protect herself from such a fate. She never went outside in the rain. She banned all metal furniture from the home that she and Basil shared. And she refused to use her metal knitting needles for her quilts when it was storming. Hmm. She would just not do it. Yeah. So I feel like she thought of everything (laughs) to like avoid potentially being struck by lightning. She was very anxious about it. And so therefore thought of all of the potential things that could happen. I mean, same. Protecting. Yeah. (laughs) Not about lightning in particular, but like about just about everything else. Yeah. (laughs) I think about all of the ways that myself or my loved ones could be injured or worse every time I do anything. So. And on the flip side of that, I was surprised when we got married and you were like, you have to unplug the toaster when you're done with it. I'm like, <laughs> I have literally never unplugged a toaster in my life. <laughs> Very different upbringings. Yeah, me and, me and Mavis will just go hang out somewhere. It's fine. So quilting was far and away Mavis's favorite activity. She loved all of her quilts so much, but in particular, she had an affection for a quilt that she'd named the Cussing Cover. The cussing cover got its name because during their first marital argument, Basil threw out some particularly colorful language. He also happened to be wearing a red flannel shirt at the same time, and eventually Mavis used the shirt as part of the quilt that would become the cussing cover. Oh, very funny. Yeah, so it has like its own little lore, (laughs) which is cute. The two would bicker from time to time, particularly over the bed frame. Basil really, really wanted a nice metal frame, but Mavis refused, insisting that the lightning would be attracted to the metal frame. Mm. In the end, it wouldn't be a lightning strike that would cause Mavis's death, but instead, Mavis would die of an illness. Shortly before her death, Mavis had her husband at her side and asked him to honor two wishes that she had for him after her death. One, that he would never sell any of her quilts, and two, that he would never put any of her quilts on a metal bed frame. Mm. That, those were that's it that's all she wanted so he can't have a metal metal bed frame forever yeah. she did give him her blessing to get remarried hmm. which is like she's like you can get remarried do whatever you want here's the deal with the quilts though but no metal bed frame. <laughs> don't mess with the quilts <laughs> so basil agreed to his wife's dying wish at that moment and shortly after she passed away 
Less than a year went by before Basil got remarried to a much younger woman by the name of Truly Jane. When Truly moved in with her new husband, she decided that the old wooden bed frame wouldn't do and that they needed to replace it with a fresh new metal frame. And so that's what they did. So Basil, the Hmm. old rascal, Mm -hmm. broke one of Mavis's dying wishes within less than a year. On one particularly cold night, Truly was freezing, and so she asked Basil if she could pull out one of the quilts to sleep with for the night, and Basil told her, of course you can. Naturally, Truly picked the cussing cover after seeing the beautiful red flannel. (laughs) So that's two out of two broken deathbed wishes. He broke both of them. She only had two. Don't. don't. He didn't didn't sell one of them. Well, okay, not yet. (laughs) Oh. I still feel like the using of it even feels like off to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm just too big of a Mavis fan. (laughs) I'm just too big of a Mavis fan. Anyway, later on that night, long after the couple had fallen asleep, Truly was startled awake by an apparition of an angry woman at the foot of the bed. Truly and the spirit locked eyes, and then the spirit began to scream at the top of her lungs. Truly sat and watched the ghost as she let out her terrible scream, momentarily frozen by fear, but she snapped out of it and woke Basil up. When Basil came to, the ghost was gone. And so Basil calmed Truly down, reassuring her that she just had a nightmare, and the pair went back to sleep. A few hours later, as they were both fast asleep, Truly was suddenly knocked from her bed with a bright, booming flash of light. The room was instantly filled with a thick smoke, but as it lifted, Truly looked across the room and found Basil, lying on the floor burnt to a crisp in the place where the metal bed frame had once been. What? Strangely, the rest of the cabin was completely untouched, and according to everyone else in the cove, it hadn't even stormed that night at all. It turns out that there was a single lightning strike that had hit the East Step home, and it happened to strike Basil directly. <laughs> Eventually, Mavis's quilts were sold to members of the East Step family and ended up in the hands of a collector. As the legend goes, Mavis's quilts are still in circulation in the Cades Cove area. Wow. Along with this long-standing ghost story, there have been plenty of reports of strange apparitions and disembodied voices that terrify visitors to the area to this very day. Since some of the details of the cove have been lost to time, nobody knows for sure which cabin belonged to Mavis and Basil, but many believe that her spirit is still attached to the area. The legend also recommends that all visitors to the cove opt to not stay in any of the cabins during a thunderstorm just to be safe. Just in case. I mean, you might as well. (laughs) Just avoid the area. Oh my gosh. Or you might as well just do it because, you know, like what, what, what's the worst that could happen is that you, you get struck, get by, lightning, struck by lightning and, and you're part to of a the crisp? legend. No way. Yeah. You, then you never die because legends never die. Okay. Oh, I forgot what the quote was. Dang it. <laughs> From the same line. <laughs> heroes, heroes are remembered, but ne- legends never die. There sure. You go. Just like Mavis. Just like Mavis. Not a hero, a legend. but definitely a legend. I would call her a hero. She made a whole lot of quilts. Well, that's fair. She's kept a lot of people warm. Also, she made me very happy with her story. That so is a great story. I like to believe it was <laughs> Mavis who directed the single lightning strike to her traitor husband. <laughs> <laughs> you broke my wishes. Oh, my goodness. So another common experience, particularly in Maryland, is the remnants of long since fallen soldiers from the Civil War being spotted. Oh, I've heard about this before. Yeah, I'm sure you have. This is actually a pretty a pretty widely known 
Hmm. occurrence. Okay. In 1862, a series of three major civil war battles were fought in Maryland along the Appalachian Trail. Many lives were lost during these particular, like this particular battle, mm-hmm. known as the Battle of South Mountain, with the soldiers making up a majority of the body count. The Battle of South Mountain took place in three phases at Crampton's Gap, Turner's Gap, and Fox's Gap. Along a two-mile stretch of the Appalachian Trail, more than 5,000 Confederate soldiers were deployed on a defensive mission, and sort of as a response to a major loss of Confederates who had been ambushed by 12,000 Union soldiers Mm. at a location near Burkittsville. The Union was also prepared for the battle at Turner's Gap, managing to take 400 men hostage during this time. The most pivotal battle of the three was at Fox's Gap, But for real, most of the information that I read about this part of the Battle of South Mountain was just a bunch of names Hmm. and like saying this person's brigade brigade attacked this person's brigade and this guy got injured and so did this guy. Wow. And so on. So So, I'm just going to kind of sum this whole bit up by saying that the, the battle at Fox's Gap was extremely bloody and it happened to end behind the wall that served as the property line to a farm owned by farmer Daniel Wise who ended up being paid $1 for each body that he buried on his property. Oh, geez. It's like a makeshift cemetery moment. Yeah. Also, that's some serious money, I feel like, back then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's like no joke. In 1862 dollars? Yeah. Up until that point, Daniel Wise and his two children lived happy lives on their farm. But once the Battle of South Mountain took place, they were actually displaced from their home for a short time, with their house becoming a place where Union soldiers would bring what little of their dead that they could retrieve from the battlefield. Oh. So it's like like a makeshift morgue as well. Yeah. And they also used his home as kind of like an infirmary. Once he returned Mm. home, Wise got to work burying the Confederate soldiers in order to make a few bucks. But then strange things began to occur. The sound of cannon fire could be heard, as well as a strange thumping noise coming from a well on the Wise property. Hmm. Upon further investigation, it was learned that Union soldiers had dumped 58 bodies into the well on Wise's property. And it's been argued that the thumping sound was the sound of bodies hitting the bottom of the well over and over for 12 full years until they were retrieved and reburied elsewhere. Then the noise stopped. Oh, geez. Isn't that super eerie? Yes. It was like a really specific thud noise. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Makes me a little bit like, yeah, that's a little, uh, <laughs> a little yeah. nauseating. That makes me uneasy. Yeah. Oh. Due to the violent nature of their deaths, it's believed that many of the spirits of the soldiers from both sides still remain, forever forced to wander the trail and woods where they died in search of a home that no longer exists. Visitors to this portion of the Appalachian Trail have reported hearing the sound of distant cannon fire, spectral campfires being set in impossible places with no one around them, and have even reported seeing apparitions dressed in super old-timey military garb wandering the trails, specifically in the area surrounding the Wise Farm well. Wow. Isn't that super bizarre? Some people have said, like, this guy was missing part of his head. This guy was his whole uniform... It looked like he was wearing a uniform of some kind. He was all bloody. I tried to talk to him. He didn't say anything, and then he just vanished. There are so many stories like that. Ooh, I can't even And like a little kid saying, Mommy, who's that guy? His clothes are funny. Yeah. On like a family hike with her parents. And it's like everybody saw this spectral figure in this family. They're all confused. And then the thing just disappears. disappears. Super bizarre. Yeah, that would freak me out. Yeah, that's no joke. So next we have the legend of Spearfinger. 
Spear finger. Spear finger. One word. Okay, spear finger. So Spearfinger is one of the oldest legends that came from Cherokee settled in the Smoky Mountains. She is a figure in Cherokee folklore whose official Cherokee name literally translates to she had it sharp. Speaking of the razor sharp forefinger protruding from her right hand that she uses to cut her victims in order to steal and eat their livers. Ooh, okay. That turned... Very, very like, dark, real fast. There's yeah. no like subtle transitional phrase when we're yeah. talking about Spearfinger. It just Apparently doesn't not. happen. Yeah, that, that's like un- that makes me unsettled even I know. more than the other stuff. So She's far. real spooky. <laughs> She's generally depicted with blood surrounding and spilling from her mouth, and her wicked heart is tucked firmly in her right hand, protecting her one weakness by keeping it tucked close to her. Mm. Spearfinger was a powerful creature with the ability to shake the earth and send boulders crashing around her as she walked in search of her next meal. This is due to her being made of stone. Hmm. She could utter a word and her loud voice would bounce off of the mountains, frightening birds and anyone or anything else that heard the sound, sending shivers down the spines of those living in the villages near the mountains, all terrified that Spearfinger was close by. Yes, that would do that. She was also (laughs) said to use various Cherokee customs in order to lure and trick her victims. One custom that they had was setting brush fires that would help them harvest chestnuts. The small fires would dot the mountainside, illuminating a path for Spearfinger to follow straight to her next victim. Good grief. So possibly the most gruesome detail of Spearfinger's story is that her victims were almost exclusively children and that she not only had a sharp finger she used to spear her poor victims, but that she could actually shapeshift into the forms of like the family members of the children she targeted in order to lower their guards as they see their mother or their brother for just long enough for Spearfinger to snatch them up and take them away. Oh, gosh. She would then shift back into her powerful stone form, sparing her victims in some hidden place in the mountains. How the heck has there not been a movie made about this? I I don't know. She's scary. She would also shift into the unassuming form of an old Cherokee woman with a deformed hand used to hide her sharp finger, luring children with the promise of brushed hair or a lullaby. And then when their guards were down in that situation, that would be when she would strike. Spearfinger might even shapeshift into the form of her victim if they died too quickly after she'd stolen their livers. She would sneak into the home of the victim, pretend to be asleep in their bed, and wait for everyone else to fall asleep before she'd sneak around the home, stealing and eating the livers of each family member as they slept. She would be quick about it, stabbing her victim through the neck or the heart so fast and so smoothly that they often wouldn't even realize that she'd stolen their livers. The victims were sometimes believed to be able to live for days without their livers before finally succumbing to their injury, with Spearfinger long gone, evading the justice that was surely due to her. Wow. Her only known enemy, apart from the humans that she hunted, is Stone Man. Oh, good. She has an enemy. That's good. Is this worse? Don't speak too soon, Kev. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. So Stone Man (laughs) is another powerful forest monster that didn't need to smash boulders to announce his presence, but instead he could simply wave his staff and create bridges between mountains to make his travels nice and easy. Hmm. He was also in the business of stealing livers, so he was unwanted competition. 
Oh, so that's why they were enemies. Not because he was after her, but... Yeah, he wasn't they, trying to stop Spearfinger. They, they he was both like, wanted the same thing. They wanted a liver snack. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's definitely worse. That's like aliens versus predators. <laughs> yes, that's a good <laughs> parallel. At some point, the Cherokee Council decided that something needed to be done about Spearfinger. And so they decided that they would lure her to one of the villages, dig a hole that they would camouflage, and when she fell in, they would figure out how to kill her. Hmm. And so they lured her with the chestnut fires, and sure enough, Spearfinger fell in the pit, but she didn't die, despite the fact that the pit was full of sharp stakes. She was too powerful and crushed the stakes and damaged the ground within the pit when she fell in. Insistent on revenge against the people, Spearfinger shifted into the form of an elderly woman, trying to convince the people that she was an unfortunate misfire on their part and that she just needed help out of the pit. This didn't work, and the people fired arrows at her, but the <laughs> arrows would break as they struck her stony form. Right, right. Birds flew from the sky and into the pit, trying to help stop Spearfinger as the people continued firing shots at the heart that she held tight in her hand. But it wasn't until an unassuming chickadee landed on her right hand, the one protecting her heart, mm. that they were able to fire an arrow through her wrist, pulling it from her body. They then destroyed her heart and her body fell into stone where it rests to this day. Wow. In order to like ward off the stone man, the Cherokee placed Spearfinger's severed hand on a stake outside of the village, warning him that he would suffer a similar fate if he came for any more Cherokee children. And this finally put an end to the reign of terror. And it's believed that if you hear rumbling with no clouds overhead in the Smoky Mountains, that you might be hearing Stone Man's song. You can also visit the Norton Creek Trail where Spearfinger used to roam and where Stone Man may still be roaming to this day. Wow. Yeah. That is... Yeah. <laughs> that, that's that's like a deep folklore. Yeah. And I'm legitimately, when I'm picturing uh, uh, Spearfinger, like the image that I have in my mind is really disturbing. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, that's crazy. Huh. Yeah, huh. I, I stumbled across a few different iterations. Like some say she's fully made of stone, while others would say her skin is made of stone due to like a curse or her clothing is made of stone. Sure. Um, and then I've also seen a lot of people say that they believe that a lot of the more unexplained activity that can happen, like particularly in the Smoky Mountain area, mm -hmm. all somehow weirdly points to Spearfinger. And so there's oh. people like trying to unpack that. And I wish that I had dug more deeply. I lost the article that I had been reading where somebody was trying to make that point. And it was super interesting. Weird. But I'm going to dig around and try huh. and find it because it was really fascinating. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. So we also have the story of the Brown Mountain Lights. The Brown Mountain Lights uh, are a series of ghostly lights that have been appearing around Brown Mountain and the surrounding area for decades. This is North Carolina. Mm, okay. The first known report of strange orbs on Brown Mountain took place in 1833. And since then, there have been thousands of people who claim to have seen them as well. The lights are generally white, but can also be blue, red, or orange, and may appear as only one light and then up to 12 lights. Mm. They can be seen flitting around near the mountaintops and kind of along the mountainsides and in the forest. I feel like it's mostly from what I saw, though, like in a pretty particular area. Mm -hmm. But then some people were also saying it's like a 60 to 70 mile kind of radius hmm. where the sightings have taken place. So I'm not fully sure on that. Like if maybe we, they're seeing it all from the same location, but you can see it from possibly that yeah. far away. Possibly. Honestly, so far, 
that one, this one sounds a lot like the Gurdon light. I'm going to bring that oh, up. Ooh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Look at you. So astute, Kev. I'm already connecting the dots. <laughs> you are. <laughs> so even before the initial report of the lights in 1833, the Cherokee and the Catawba tribes have both been seeing the lights as well. And so whatever they are, they've been there for a while. So did are these tribes, they were around at the same time too? or Much earlier. Oh, okay. Long before the 1833 oh, report was made, sure. okay. the Catawba and the Cherokee had both had like, they'd seen the lights and uh-huh. they had also kind of formed explanations for them through story. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get into that in just a second. Okay. Since the initial 1833 report, the phenomenon has been studied three times by the United States government, mm. countless times by scientists, paranormal enthusiasts, and ghost hunters, and countless more times by students at Appalachian University. I feel like when the government gets involved- Three times. Three thrice. times, you're like, um- why? <laughs> yeah, what are you like, doing up there? What's, what's just, so concerning to you guys about this? If, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as far as explanations go, it was initially believed that the people were simply seeing car or train lights bouncing around the sides and tops of the mountain. But this explanation doesn't account for the way that the lights tend to behave mm-hmm. and for the fact that they've been seen since way before cars and right. trains were even a thing at all. That's what I was about to say. Another explanation is, much like the Gurdon light in Arkansas, that possibly the lights are either a result of bioluminescence or of underground electricity being generated by mineral deposits deep underground. But both of these have yet to be proven. Hmm. They're like, that's got to be what it is, but nobody can prove it. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Even with the Gurdon light, which, by the way, for anybody who's listening that doesn't know what we're talking about, this is just a few episodes ago. We talked about the Gurdon light, and it's an awesome story. And it's and one that uh, I have some personal connection to, so go may listen to may it if you I haven't. May have not seen it, but possibly, okay, anyway. possibly witnessed it for himself, which but is kind of cool. The whole the whole mineral deposits thing is like, it's such an interesting like like concept, but it, it's got to be it's kind of pseudoscience-y in my mind. I'm just like you. I mean, it's not because these are genuine. Things like these are real things that happen, right? Like the way that like those kinds of lights shine in dark caves. Like I get that, but the whole like it reflects above ground in that way. Anyway, we don't need to get all the way into that right now. But the point I'm making is like these are explanations <laughs> that are just kind of getting like it's a best guess kind of scenario here, right? And that's why it's interesting to me. Well, that is kind of what I was getting at, that like, this is what many people, like many scientists who have studied it, assume that this is one of those two things potentially. Yeah. But Cherokee people have long believed that the lights were the ghostly lanterns of the wives of fallen Cherokee warriors who would search the hills and mountains for their fallen husbands. Which, let's be real, that's just as likely based on evidence. It hasn't been proven. <laughs> so, yeah, based on <laughs> so I just want to point that out to everybody. Anybody who's a naysayer, that's that's the point I'm making is this is just as likely to be the case. <laughs> I mean, it's Halloween. Why not? Yeah, exactly. So while others believe if they aren't ghostly, that perhaps they're from out of this world. Ooh. The Brown Mountain Lights were featured in an X-Files episode in 1999 and in a found footage horror movie called Alien Abduction uh, in 2014. Really? Yeah. 
I don't know if I heard about that movie. That's I have seen so many found footage movies. That's true. And so many found footage alien movies. <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't think I've seen it. I don't think I've seen it, but I feel like we should because I'm pretty sure right. it's an IFC movie too, which I always like Ooh, the stuff yeah, that like IFC, IFC puts out. Yeah. Anyway. So anyway, to wrap up, I thought it would be fun to share some kind of ghostly encounters that people have shared across the internet about Appalachia over yes. the years. I love ending with ghosty stories. Me too. Obviously, we can't verify any of these and should take them with a grain of salt. But for the sake of fun, I'm just going to encourage everyone to suspend disbelief for a minute and enjoy some spooky tales. That's right. This first story was a submission on BlueRidgeOutdoors.com by Brad Lane. Quote, It's taken some time for me to even process the events in my own head. But lately, I've been able to think about this weird thing that happened to me on the trail sometime in late August or early September. I had a random week off of work, and keeping a busy schedule, I felt it was a rarity. I was getting a little restless, and I knew that I had to blow off some stress for a bit and explore the great outdoors. On the account that I was so ready for a vacation and no one else's schedule matched up for an adventure week, I decided to go at it solo and backpack alone for a week. Mm. It had been years since I last backpacked alone, and for some reason I had convinced myself I once enjoyed it. But when I dropped my car at the trailhead at Catawba, about 15 miles from Newcastle, and I started hiking, I noticed the different atmosphere backpacking alone provides. Hmm. I couldn't shake how incredibly silent it was. I could hear my own breathing, and every now and then I would look over my shoulder quickly in response to random noises. I was almost anxious to begin with, but told myself I had to just get used to this new aspect of backpacking that I wasn't accustomed to. The first night, I managed to set up camp, make dinner, and immediately retire to my tent. I was unusually exhausted, which now seems as a surprise for the little sleep that I got that night. I tossed and turned, listening to the silent night until late morning when I finally rested my eyes. Well after daybreak, I got out of my tent and drug my feet to pack my belongings. It was much later than I had aimed for the night before. I made it about five miles during the day, but it took me the entire afternoon until dark. I was tired and it seemed without having someone to push me along that my hiking was considerably slower. I pitched my tent that night, filtered water, and started setting up my cook gear in the dark. It was getting to feel pretty late and with limited light to cook under, I decided to just eat a pack of raw ramen noodles in my tent. I opened my book to read but only fell asleep immediately into another half-sleep, half-wrestling match for the night. The worst. Yeah. I remember at one point staring at the top of my darkened tent, not really sure if I was awake or not, and suddenly hearing the loud crunch of footsteps outside my tent. They were fast going as they came, but with the footsteps came something of a grumble. I couldn't actually be sure, and I couldn't distinguish any actual words, but in my mind's eye, I was sure I heard something grumbling to themselves in a deep and agitated voice. I never even got out of my sleeping bag. Not experienced with some of the sounds of the night and their magnification in the silence, I tried to convince myself it was my ears playing tricks on me. And although I managed to stay in my sleeping bag that night, I didn't fall asleep until early morning. Mm. The next day, I woke up even later and more tired than before. I made a groggy attempt at oatmeal and sat with my breakfast unable to talk to anyone. I got my pack ready in the afternoon sun and headed out. About three and a half miles later, I dropped my pack and sat watching the sun begin to disappear. I managed to collect a fair amount of firewood, and by the time nightfall came, I had a small fire going with a good collection of firewood piled beneath me. Under the reassuring light of the campfire, I started to become more at ease with the deafening silence of nature. 
I pulled a cigarette from my pocket and enjoyed a casual smoke as I put my feet up. When I tried to ditch the butt in my weakening flames, my throw was off and it landed outside of the ashes. I got up to fix my mistake and to stoke the fire when I turned around to go back to my seat and I saw him. The light was low with my little fire, but I could clearly see a man reaching down with a scorched hand for my firewood. He wore red plaid with large black burns tearing at his trim and a red ashy beard that smoldered at his face. He quickly looked up and his vacant white eyes connected with mine. He gritted his teeth and scrunched his nose towards me before quickly leaving the ring of firelight. I was shocked. I've never experienced a fear like it. I fell right onto my butt next to the flames. I looked out into the forest and saw nothing but dark shadows and unclear objects, a blank wall of nothing, of everything. I didn't know what to do. I didn't even yell. With no one to hear me but him, so I did what every red-blooded American would do. I packed up my things and got the hell out of Dodge. (laughs) (laughs) I stumbled through the darkness, half the time with my headlamp off, afraid to be seen, or even of seeing anything else. I stumbled around for hours, bumping into trees and tripping every which way. I wasn't even sure where my map and compass were. I just kept moving. Hmm. I could have been hiking in circles for all I know. I was driven by my beating heart, and to this day, I know I have never been so scared in my life. When dawn finally broke and I could see again, I kept moving. At about 12.30, I started to recognize some signs of civilization. I threw my pack down in a big open pasture, but couldn't see any houses or roads. I knew I had to be close to something, but I was by no means sure where I had ended up. I was almost too tired to think about it. Instead, in a fit of not knowing what to do, but knowing I had to do something, I pitched my tent and ate a large chunk of cheese and salami. (laughs) After the meal and under the afternoon sun, I almost immediately fell asleep in the grass where I ate my lunch. I awoke two to three hours later, for the sun had dropped down considerably, and a funny smell filled my nostrils. I blinked a few times, and when the funny smell persisted, I shot off my back with my heart beating to the sound of something troubling. What I saw was my tent or what remained of my tent. For now, the only thing left standing was the tent poles that dripped with oozing leftovers of my tent body. A bubbly layer of melted green plastic lay beneath the poles with a steady gray smoke still rising from the mess. I got up and felt the weight of the sky fall on my head. For a moment, I was sure I had woken into a horrible nightmare. Mm. Without contemplating it much further, I grabbed my water bottle and ran through the empty pasture. By the time I made it to the gravel road, I was out of breath and dripping with sweat. I hastily chugged from my water bottle and wiped my mouth. Down the road, I could see a vehicle parked in the dust. I staggered forward with my hands on my sides and soon realized it was a sheriff's sedan. And for the first time in a long time, I couldn't have been happier to see a law enforcement vehicle. (laughs) When I got closer to the vehicle, I noticed that it was parked outside of the remains of a charred house, nothing left standing but the mailbox out front. On the way into town, I didn't tell the officer about my experience being afraid that he might think I escaped from the loony bin and instead asked him about the burnt down house that he had been parked in front of. The sheriff explained to me that four days prior, the same day I started my trip, the house had burnt down. They had no known cause, but there was an indication of arson. Two daughters, a wife and her husband, were all in the house when the fire started and none of them made it out. Real tragic stuff, the sheriff said, as he retold the story, and I could only shake my head with my bottom jaw hanging low. Go out, scare some fun into the night, and don't forget the ghost stories, Brad. (sighs) Yeah. Oh, that's spooky. 
Ooh. Yeah. I don't like that. Real creepy. Yes. Real, real creepy. That's not the only story of like a burnt figure appearing to someone more than once. There was like stories of a man who was like fully charred, who would chase people in certain parts of specifically on the trail. Yeah. Nightmare. That, that, yeah. But then there's also like countless, countless, countless people that are like, the scariest thing I've ever encountered on the Appalachian Trail was like a bear. (laughs) It's fine. Like you guys are all crazy. That alone would be scary for if you didn't know what to do, especially. Oh, for sure. But yeah. But they think that we're silly for thinking the ghost stories are silly or are cool or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. The next story we have, I found in a thread on whiteblaze.net submitted by user. I'm going to go for this. We're a yaggy. <laughs> that has to be right. So they wrote, quote, I've always thought that there were logical or scientific answers for all of these paranormal phenomena and probably always would have, if not for the two nights I spent at Pierce Pond in June. Both nights were exquisite in temperature and weather and no bugs, which at the time I found quite odd. In Mm. hindsight, it seems potent. I was alone, had a campfire, and played my harmonica and sang the first night. As the embers dimmed, I sat on the edge of the lean-to, writing in my journal as the night sounds started to get my attention. They were just different, and I knew someone or something was about. I could feel it. Through the moonlight, Mm. I could see something that kind of took me aback, and I sat as still as possible while trying to slouch into my sleeping bag. There is no doubt that it was a figure that was moving across my sight between me and the pond. It definitely was the form of a spectral woodsy outdoorsman type with a small pack and what appeared to be fishing gear. The figure faded into the night, and I woke refreshed and relieved to be on the trail in such a beautiful location. I thought about heading out as my first experience like this had me unnerved, but the day was beautiful and I mostly forgot about it and stayed to enjoy another day. But as my campfire lit the trees around me that night, the same woodsy character reappeared and as the fire crackled, its eyes turned towards me and I was truly frightened for the first time in my life. I ran up the hill away from the lean-to and didn't stop until I could barely breathe. Creepy. I finally had to slump down next to a tree and wait for morning. When daylight came, I found my way back to the lean-to, packed up, and went to Tim's for pancakes and told him what I had seen. (laughs) He'd heard of this, too. It seems for years this vision has been haunting a wide area of Maine, although he was unsure if it had ever caused any trouble. Wow. End of story. Oh. And, like, he's right. There are a lot of people who are like, I've totally seen that. That's so crazy. And, like, their experiences were similar. Like, they saw this figure in this part of the trail in Maine. Mm-hmm. And then two days later, they saw it again. But like, like as walking from the opposite direction. So if they're like heading south uh-huh. and they see it on like the first day, mm-hmm. it's like kind of just floating around doing its thing. And then four days later, they're much further south and the thing is approaching them from the south. Ooh. So it's like heading north towards so them. more than one of them. Yeah. Ooh. So that's pretty Creepy. darn spooky. So if you find yourself wanting a scenic vacation or feel like taking a hike along the Appalachian Trail, it's always wise to be on your guard. With steep valleys, potential falls, the threat of getting lost or encountering a dangerous animal, the trail has plenty of natural dangers of its own. But this expansive stretch of the country may also be home to countless spirits with any manner of intentions. (laughs) And that is what I have for you today. Oh my gosh, that is crazy. Yeah. So good. I I said this in the last episode. I'll probably say this a thousand times more. 
I just love a good ghost story. Same. Appalachia the, ghost stories yes. hit different too. Yes. And I love the creepy beings and yeah, this whole, this whole, these two episodes so far together have been really fun for me. Really good. neat. And yeah, it's just, it's scratching an itch. Like I said earlier. Scratched like an it. itch in my ADHD brain. That's like, you want to talk about a spear finger. <laughs> you want to talk about a ghost in Maine. Right. You also really want to <laughs> talk about a, a quilter down in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's you're, like, you're, that you're was super fun for me to write. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> this, this whole series of stories was really fun to put together. That's great. I love it. And with that, this will also wrap up our spooky season episodes. Indeed. And uh, I think we're going to take a, uh, a Thursday off this week since we doubled up in the early part of the week, right? Yes, but, but? if you're on Patreon, <gasps> Friday will be the first Friday of the month. Meaning That's right. Fiction, what is it? Fiction Friday. Fiction first Friday. First Fiction Friday. So what... We'll work Once, on it. Yeah, we're working on that. <laughs> so basically, the the loose idea is that the first Friday of every month, you're going to get a fiction story over on Patreon. Ooh. So be well, on the lookout for that. With that in mind, let me just go ahead. We'll, we're going to do this backwards from what we usually do. Mm-hmm. My dear, what is Patreon? Why should people be involved in that? Yes. So I'm just going to say what I always say. That's great. You can follow <laughs> the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook About section or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod. And for $5 a month, less than a pumpkin spice latte. You would know. I sure <laughs> would. You can support our show. Supporters on Patreon get access to all of our content ad-free, along with two monthly bonus episodes that are exclusive to Patreon. And now, apparently, you're going to get an extra fictional story each Friday, first Friday of the month. That's right. Yeah. Ooh. And there's so many good things about Patreon that I just love. That. You in particular love the fiction, or not the fiction, the Patreon stories. I do. I do. I you love those say stories. That. And there's just something special about being a part of that community on Facebook. And yeah, the all people the are so nice. Right, right. So They're the sweetest. So don't miss out. Don't miss out. If, uh, if connecting over on Patreon, though, is a little much for you, there's another way to connect with us. And that's just over on social medias on yeah, social medias. Yeah, all of the medias. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on Instagram and TikTok, at this one is a doozy. And on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. Also, if you haven't already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast and leave a glowing five-star review. Those reviews help other people to find this podcast who like other podcasts like it already. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory collection of stories today mm-hmm. and we'll see you next week for another doozy thank you guys bye bye